You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen, church. Amen. Let's continue in prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, we lift high your name this morning. We lift high your name knowing that every single word that we just sung in that song is absolutely true of you and who you are. That your name is the name that is above every other name. That your name is the name at which every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and give glory to one day. Lord, you are truly worthy of all glory. Lord, you spoke into the nothingness and you created everything that we see around us, Lord. You reached down into the earth and you formed man and breathed into him the breath of life created in your image. Lord, you are glorious. You are awesome, majestic. Lord, we admit that collectively today, Lord, we have turned astray from you. That it was mankind that chose to wage war of rebellion against God by choosing sin. But Lord, today we come together so thankful, knowing and remembering that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has obeyed perfectly in every single way and who has taken our sin to the cross where he suffered in our place. And he went into the grave for us and he rose victorious and through faith in him, we can be saved, we can be redeemed, we can be reconciled to the living God for all of eternity. Lord, we stand here today knowing those truths, but Lord, we stand here today praying that you would press those truths deep into our hearts once again. Oh God, we pray, do it again, Lord. Show us the greatness of Jesus Christ. Show us the greatness of the gospel. Move in our hearts together as we hear your word through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name and for your name's sake. Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat this morning. I'm so glad that you are here with us today on October 31st, 2021. So glad that you're here. I just want to invite you to open up your Bible to the book of Jude this morning. We're going to be there in a few minutes. A book of Jude is pretty easy to find if you just go to Revelation. Just turn one back and you'll find the book of Jude. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. Uh, But while you are turning, I want to remind you of an event that happened many years ago, 504 years ago to be exact, on October 31st. 1517, around noon, the sound of a hammer and nail rang out from the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. A young Augustinian monk and a professor at the university posted a document on that door that would change the course of history forever, would definitely change the course of church history, but would change the course of all of history forever. As you might have guessed, this young monk, his name was Martin Luther. The document that he nailed there to the door has become known as the 95 Theses. 
Thus, as he nailed that document to the door, it sparked what is known as the Protestant Reformation across Germany, followed by the rest of the world. And in order to grasp the full significance of what I've just shared there, we need to kind of just back up a little bit. We need to kind of just back up a little bit before the day that Martin Luther posted that on the door. We need to back up just a short time earlier. A short time earlier in the town of Wittenberg, a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel came to town And he came and visited Wittenberg and was visiting many other cities in Germany. And while he was doing this, he was preaching and selling indulgences. And this struck Luther as as wrong. And the Catholic Church at this time had, had not outlawed indulgences, had actually endorsed the selling of indulgences. But not only that struck Luther as wrong... There was much more. As Tetzel came into town, he would speak and preach these these heart-moving, heart-stirring sermons about people and them listening with their ears to hear their loved ones crying out for their help while they suffered in purgatory. And at the end of Tetzel's sermon, he would always tell people, can't you hear them? Can't you hear them crying out? And then he would end with a line like this, and this was what really got Luther's back up. And he would say, for a sum of money, you can purchase their freedom from purgatory. And he would use this little slogan that he had. And he would say, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Well, this infuriated Luther and many other like-minded Christians in the area. And Luther went to work immediately putting together the 95 Theses, and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Church, the the All Saints Church. Now, don't get the wrong impression when we say that he nailed it to the door. Maybe I was exaggerating earlier when I said that the sound of a hammer and nail rang out. Maybe it didn't quite ring out. Uh, Luther, when he nailed it to the door, was not committing an act of civil disobedience or defiance at this point. The church door in those days was basically a bulletin board for the theologians. They would come and they would post something to be debated, to be discussed, and Luther's intention in posting this document was to to generate discussion amongst the other professors at the university regarding the sale of indulgences and specifically the way that Tetzel was carrying this out. However, thanks to the invention of the printing press and the efforts of some young enterprising students, the 95 Theses that were written in Latin, which was the common language among the elite leaders of the day, were then translated quickly into German, the common language of Germany, and they were sent off to many of the surrounding areas, villages, towns, cities. Within two weeks, within two weeks, A copy of the 95 Theses could be found in virtually every town in that portion of Germany. The Protestant Reformation had started. An unquenchable flame that could not be put out was lit. Not even the military force of the Roman Empire at that point could snuff it out. But in order to understand that, 
We need to back up a little bit further, actually about a, a hundred years further, 102 years, to a man named John Huss, 1415. hundred years earlier, John Huss stood against the Roman Catholic Church of the day saying that the scriptures alone were the final authority for everything pertaining to faith, life, and godliness, period, end of sentence, full stop, that's it. Now, this struck the Roman Catholic Church as being a major problem because they didn't hold that the scriptures were the final authority. They held that the scriptures and the popes and the councils and the edicts and the canons were the combined authority, and Huss said, no way. The scriptures are the final authority. John Huss gave his life for the word of God. John Huss was condemned as a heretic. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake, and apparently, as history would record it, as he was there at the stake that day, a hundred years before Martin Luther, he said, you may burn or cook this goose, the word goose, his last name Hus means goose in, I believe, Czechoslovakian. And he said, you may cook this goose, but after me there will come a swan, which you will not be able to silence. As church history records it, Martin Luther would be that swan that would not be able to be silenced. The other reformers that joined with him and were to follow with him would be part of that swan that would not be able to be silenced. Luther was born in 14, 1483, about nine years before Columbus discovered the new world. Originally, he was educated as a lawyer. He had an absolutely brilliant, brilliant mind. As he was on his way home one day from the university, he was caught in a thunderstorm that changed his life. And in the middle of this thunderstorm, it's reported that lightning struck the ground right near him. And he cried out as a monk, he cried out to, to Saint Anne to save him. There's a whole backstory to that. You can look up that one yourself. Um, but he cried out and he, and he vowed in that moment that if he was saved, that he would become a monk. And he shortly after that became a monk. And as a monk, Luther was incredibly devout, incredibly devout. He would sometimes spend two, three, four hours in confession of his sins. Luther being trained as a lawyer, as he looked into the law of God, saw an incredible amount of guilt in his own life. But Luther reported later, and he said, looking back, he said, about his devotion as a monk, he said, you know, if anyone could have ever gotten to heaven by his monkery, it would have been me. Luther said that after he had studied the book of Romans, after he had come to the conclusion that justification was only by faith alone, through grace alone. Over time, Luther became disillusioned with the church, especially after he visited Rome and he saw the corruption of the priesthood there. Why do we talk about this today? Well, why do we talk about it today? Because as you might have guessed, today is Reformation Sunday. 504 years ago on this day, Martin Luther posted those 95 theses on the door of the church. 504 years ago to this day, the Protestant Reformation was started that changed the entire face of history. In reality, the reason that we sit here today in this way is because of that day. 
And so today, as we open up to the book of Jude, I want to invite you to use everything that I've just shared as the backdrop for what we are about to talk about today. The whole Protestant Reformation, the English Reformation, which we didn't get into, but just use that as the backdrop because it's out of that that we come to look at this text that is in front of us today. Today we're just going to focus in on two verses here in the book of Jude. I would encourage you later on today, read the rest of the book of Jude on your own. Uh, It's just a very, very short read, but two verses today. Let's take a look there, verses 3 and verses 4. But before we go there, I just want to say this. If we were to summarize the Reformation in just a few words, what would we say? I think one way that we could summarize it in just a few words would, would be to say these words. The Reformation is about contending for the faith. Or, the Reformation is all about standing for Christ against the world. That's what we learn in the Reformation, but I want us to see this in Scripture, because it's right here in front of us in the book of Jude. And so let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Jude writes this, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. How awesome is that? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage today, I want to just draw out a few simple things from it, and I want to lay them against the backdrop of the Reformation. And so as we move forward, we're going to talk a little bit about the Reformation and talk about this passage and talk about our lives here together and kind of place ourselves at our current moment in history, understanding all or some of what has gone before us. And here's the first thing that we need to see from this passage right here in front of us. We are commanded, we are commanded to contend earnestly for the faith. We're commanded to contend earnestly for the faith. Do you see that? Right in, right in Jude's words here, he says that he was so eager to write them. He was, he was, just dying to write them to talk about how awesome their salvation, their common salvation is, how great and glorious it is, what God has done on their behalf. He says, but, 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 I was eager to do that. But, but, I found it necessary to write to you, to appeal to you, to contend earnestly for the faith. So there was something in in Jude's mind or something in Jude's heart or some word had been delivered to Jude that said, whoa, hold on, this letter that you're about to write to these brothers and sisters in this church, it needs to be about the urgency of contending for the gospel, about the urgency of contending for the faith that has been delivered down through the apostles to us. They need to understand just how urgent this is. Brothers, sisters, we are commanded to contend earnestly for the faith, for the truth. In Jude's day, the truth was under attack. Jude wanted to write an encouraging letter, but instead he had to write a letter that urged them to press on to contend for the faith. Now, this is not different than what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the apostle Paul 
uh, speaking to Timothy, reminds him that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church has been entrusted with the truth. We are the ones who have received the word of God. We've been entrusted with that truth to take it out into the world. And at times, that will mean that we must contend for that truth, for that word of God. Well, what does it mean to contend? Well, if you just look it up in the dictionary, it means to fight, to argue, to struggle, to dispute. That's what it means. If you were to define it from the book of Jude, you'd go down a little bit further on, and you would find that Jude uses the word contend again, and he talks about um, one of the archangels contending over the body of Moses, and that would appear to be a dispute, okay? An, an argument in that sense. If you look up the word contend through the rest of Scripture, you will find that normally it's, it's a dispute, at least it is a firm standing for, the idea of a spiritual battle, a battle in that sense. Anyway, we are firmly standing, willing to stand even to the point of fighting for the gospel, spiritually speaking. It's at least that. We are called to contend for the truth. Now, the reason that I want to say this, and the reason that I've said this so many times already, <laughs> is because it's really important. It's really important today. Because I believe that there is a very subtle pressure in the church, a very overt pressure in society, but a very, very subtle pressure in the church which would tell us today, you don't need to contend for the faith. You believe it in your heart, you believe it in your home, you believe it in your pew on Sunday, but no, no contending, no contending for the faith. That's, that's the olden days. That's Reformation time. We're, we've moved past that now. We're more civilized I want to push back on that today, because if there's ever a day in the history of humanity where it is important, vital, absolutely vital to contend for the faith, it's today. It's today. And, we, and the call that Jude gives was not just a call for back then, it's a call for today, that we are to contend for the faith, we are to contend for the truth of God's word. We must cling to it. We must stand for it. I think part of the problem today is that we have a real problem with niceness. We have a real nice problem. I guess we have a problem. And it's not that we're not nice. And maybe it's not even that we're too nice. I think the problem is that we don't understand what nice actually is. So I want to just unpack this a little bit for us for a second here, but I think that we have a real nice problem today. The problem's not that we're too nice, but the problem is that we are so afraid of being considered not nice by some people that we are even willing to set aside the truth, to ignore the truth in order to be perceived as nice, not offensive. We're even at the point where we may be willing to avoid offending anyone so much that we would be willing to not offend them all the way to hell. That's a scary thing for the church, isn't it? Because we have been entrusted with the Word of God, the message of salvation. So we have a real problem 
with nice today. I think our definition of nice is all messed up. And why do I say that? I think that we've taken our definition of what's considered to be nice today from the world, and we've imported it into the church. We've taken an understanding of what the world says is loving, okay, a man-centered view of what the world says is loving. We brought that into the church, and we're allowing that to govern whether we can say this from Scripture, can say that, can't say this, can't say that, and the church is doing this. If you just look across evangelicalism in North America, the church is, is just ripe with it right now. We have a nice problem. We want to be considered as nice by everybody at all costs. Now, if you would have been alive in Luther's day, and you would have been in one of the towns that Luther came to visit, you would not have thought Luther was very nice. Okay, you, if you would have read some of his writings, you probably wouldn't have thought he was nice. I probably wouldn't have thought he was nice. We probably, that would not be the first word. Nice would not be the first word that you would probably associate with Martin Luther. That is for sure, okay? And sometimes Martin Luther was just downright not nice. Sometimes in a good way for a good reason. Sometimes maybe in a bad way for a bad reason, okay? Martin Luther is a really interesting character. He's got a lot of quirks about him. I'm not defending everything with Luther here today, but I do think we can learn from the example of Luther, and what he stood for. And we can take some valuable lessons away. Now, Martin Luther wouldn't have been considered nice. Um, he often called his critics dogs. That's not nice. And whenever they, the, the critics who would criticize his, his writings or his sermons would, would start to talk and say things and, and, and rebuke him, he would say, oh, the dogs are barking again. That's not nice. Uh, Martin Luther... Um, he criticized Erasmus, who was one of the leading secular, uh, secular philosophers of the Roman Catholic Church in that day. He, he criticized him, saying that his writings were like gold or silver dishes carrying dung. That's not nice. You know, Erasmus, when you write, it's just like a gold dish filled with... That's really not nice at all, okay? That's not nice at all. Somewhat humorous, but, but not nice. Very effective in getting his point across. But point is, if we were around in Martin Luther's day, we would have probably been like, Man, I like Martin Luther's message. I just don't like his tone. He's just not nice all the time. He's just not nice. And we might have been so offended by Martin Luther that we might not have even listened to Martin Luther. We might have written off the message because of the delivery. Now, I'm not here today to say that we should be uh, a jerk or a, an idiot, okay? Anything like that at all. I loved Pastor Ross's shirt that he showed us today. I had no idea he was going to wear that until the first service. I was like, this is amazing. This is the perfect balance to what I'm about to say. And we need balance. Because kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of Christ's nature. It's part of what He calls us to be. But my point is that we've brought in a definition of nice and loving from the world, and we've called it Christian. And if we actually look at the Scripture, I'm going to say it's not Christian. It's not Christian. I want to test you right now. I want to test you with this. I want to ask you a simple question. I want you to put your hand up if you would agree that Jesus Christ is the perfect standard of gentleness. Okay, we're like 40% first service. Okay, maybe I asked that question poorly. Let me try this again. Okay, who would agree that Jesus Christ is the perfect standard of gentleness? Put your hand up. 
Okay, good, we've got about 60%. We'll go with that, okay? Um, We should agree with that. We should agree that Jesus Christ is the perfect standard of gentleness because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly, okay? So Jesus says, hey, I'm gentle, okay? And if Jesus says that he is something, we should believe him, right? And if Jesus says that he is something, we should also know that Jesus is perfect, so therefore Jesus would also be the perfect standard of that. Therefore, let's try the test again. Who would say that Jesus is the perfect standard of gentleness? Put your hand up. Great, I'm glad that we got that straight. We're closer to 100% on that one. That's good. So providing that we agree with that, I just want you to think about this for a second because Jesus is the perfect standard of gentleness, of kindness, and of love. And so I want to kind of test this niceness thing on Jesus for a second here. Did Jesus offend people at times? Oh, yes. yes. Uh Uh-oh, we have a predicament, don't we? Um, So Jesus was super offensive at times. If if you're not sure about that, read Matthew 23. Uh, Jesus offended the Pharisees constantly. My wife and I are kind of watching this show called The Chosen right now, and uh, I like it. I like it. You you check it out and make your own assessment, though, but I like it. And uh, one of the things that we see is Jesus and a couple of the Pharisees are, they're just like this. But Jesus is always loving. He's always kind. He's always nice in the right way, but not nice in the wrong way. Now, Jesus offended people at times. That should cause us a bit of a problem If we strive to be non-offensive today in Christianity, if that's our main goal, we might be out of step with Jesus. Do we understand that? Okay, that's a problem. So I want you to think about this for a second. We're going to do a little kind of a litmus test right here. Think about this. What is the most offensive statement that you could drop on social media today, say on Twitter or on Facebook, you know, just drop into a conversation about spirituality. So let's say, you know, you find, you know, kind of one of those conversations about spirituality where everybody's sitting cross-legged and humming and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you just drop something. Now, something, when I say something offensive, it has to be from the Bible, okay? From the Bible, that's the rules. Because there's a lot of offensive things that you could just say that would not probably be good or sanctified or, and shouldn't be said. But from the Bible, what is the offensive, the, the most offensive thing you could just drop into that conversation? Jesus is Lord. That's a big one. I'm going to go with this one, though. John 14, verse 6. Words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is utterly offensive in North America today. If you're not sure about that, drop it on your social media and see what happens. It is. It's utterly offensive today. Jesus Christ said it. And it's true. It's true. He's the only way of salvation. It's true. But Jesus doesn't stop there with being offensive. Matthew 19. You could test this one. Drop this one on your social media. Get ready for a firestorm. Matthew 19. Being asked a series of questions, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's offensive today. But he goes on in that same passage. I look at this passage in Matthew 19, and I'm like, Jesus, are you just trying to offend the 2021 generation? Is that your aim here? Maybe. 
or show us the way, show us the truth. Verse 5, he says, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's offensive today. Drop that one on the social media and see, see who gets offended. There will be people offended if you have many people following you. But he goes on. And he says, so they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's offensive today. Do we understand the predicament here? Do we see how serious this predicament is? If we are going to contend for the faith, contend for the truth, we have to understand that there will be things that when we say these very words, people will not like us. They won't think we're nice. They'll call us mean names, even if we say them in the nicest way possible. Hey, I just, I want you to know, out of, I've been looking at this all my life, and I want to tell you about how Jesus Christ has saved me from my sin. And I want to share a verse with you. It comes from John chapter 14, it's verse 6. There's going to be people that think that's offensive when you say it, no matter how nice, no matter how from your heart. And we need to become okay with that. Now, there's a big difference between being offended by the messenger and being offended by the message. Okay, we need to understand that difference. If you're not sure about that difference, you need to take some time to prayerfully work that out. Because the messenger should be kind, should be gracious, should be humble, should be loving, should seek to win the person, not the argument. That is important. But in order to do that, the messenger must also be willing to speak the full message, even if it means that they're not going to be considered to be nice. That's where we're at today. That message right there is not going to be a popular message in a lot of churches going forward. But I believe that here, because we believe in the foundation of God's Word, that there will be things that the church will be at odds with culture on, that that is a message that we need to cling to. That we need to cling to the fact that we are called to contend for the gospel. The reality is today that you won't always be considered nice if you preach Christ. That's the reality. And the church must contend for the faith or the church will be condemned for its lack of faith. That's the reality that's in front of us today. And so we need to think about how we work this out and what this looks like and how we live this out in our daily lives. But just as a starting point today, you know, what exactly do we contend for, you might be wondering as you sit in your seat. You know, what do we contend for? Like, do we, do we contend for everything with everyone? I just want to give you five things that we contend for. First and foremost, in the church and with other Christians. Secondly, in the world. Five things. These are coming straight out of the Reformation. Straight out of the Reformation. They might be up on the screen for us. I'll go through them slowly. But five doctrines that are worth contending for always today. The first one is the doctrine of grace alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. In the Latin, sola gratia, it, it, it simply means that we are saved by grace alone, not by any works that we would do in any way that does not contribute, that does not factor in. It is the grace of God alone that saves us. Praise God. Amen. Amen. The second is sola fide, faith alone, that we are saved, okay, 
by faith alone, not by the things that we do, not by, you know, our baptism, by this, by that, by good works, or anything else, by, by faith alone, it's belief out of the heart because of the grace of God that has been given to us. Third, third, we're saved by Christ alone, sola Christus. We're saved by Christ alone. We're not saved by our own good works, obviously. We're not saved by the work of any other saints or any of the apostles. We're saved by Christ alone, His perfect work on the cross for us. Think of it this way, two parts of Christ's obedience, okay? His, first of all, His active obedience in His life, where He obeyed everything that the Father commanded perfectly. That's why it's pretty easy for Jesus to be the perfect, you know, the perfect threshold of gentleness, right? Obeyed perfectly his active obedience. Second, his passive obedience on the cross where he submitted himself to be, to be crucified on the cross and to have all of the sins of the world poured on top of him to receive the full wrath of God in our place. Christ alone. How awesome is that? So why don't you get judgment for all of eternity? Why don't I get judgment that I deserve for all of eternity? Because of Christ alone. That's awesome because of his perfect work in our place. And then fourth, sola scriptura, the scripture alone, the word of God alone. Not, not popes, not canons, not creeds, not edicts, not, you know, Bob off in the desert who had some mystical vision and this and that and the other thing, but scripture alone is the final authority for salvation and for all matters of life and faith and godliness. And then finally, the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. If we put all this together, what does it mean? Well, here's a declaration. Here's our declaration. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's your testimony, this coming straight out of the Reformation. That's why the Reformation's precious. Listen, listen to your testimony. I am a Christian. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and all for the glory of God alone. How awesome is that? These are the five doctrines that the reformers went to the stake on. These are the five doctrines that they said to the face of the world, no, we will not back down. No, we will not be quiet. No, we will not stop preaching. We must contend for these truths. Church, they contended for those truths. We must contend for those same truths today. Those truths, if you look at them and you dig into it and you look at what's going on in the evangelical world today, those truths are being attacked left, right, and center from places that you might not even expect it from. So we need to pray. We need to pray for the church. We need to pray for, for pastors, we need to pray for, for elders, for leaders, for church people to stand strong and to be willing to contend for the faith and to understand what that looks like in the world that we live in today. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, all for the glory of God alone. Praise God. And if we will contend for the faith, if we're going to contend for the faith, 
we need to also understand something about the nature of being watchful. This is the second thing. The first thing is kind of the main thing. The second thing is this. We must be on the lookout for subtle shifts in doctrine and church practice. So if we're going to contend for the faith, if we're going to stand firm for the faith in our culture, in our generation today, we must be on the lookout for subtle shifts in doctrine or even in church practice and even in one another's lives, I'm going to say, as we're in small group together, as we walk with one another and love one another. We need to be on the lookout. We need to be lovingly on the lookout. Notice what it says in verse 4 of our text. Jude says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something from Jude's words here. Notice that error doesn't rush into the church like a tsunami. It's not boom, there it all is. Normally not. There are cases, yes, where it does, but the normal pattern is that error seeps into the church slowly. That's what had happened in the Roman Catholic Church. The error had had crept in slowly and continued to multiply. Error creeps in slowly. Notice Jude's words. He says that it crept in, that it crept in unnoticed. When I think of error coming into the church, I, you know, I kind of think of you know, back in the 90s, who was alive in the 90s? Anybody alive in the 90s? Yeah, okay, so a bunch of us, good. Okay, that's good. We can do math, awesome. Um, or know when we were born, at least. Um, I think back in the 90s, you remember those Amway sales people? If you're an Amway salesperson, or if you were an Amway salesperson, I'm, I'm sorry, because what I'm going to say is probably going to offend you. So I will apologize for not being nice in this case. Um, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm probably going to offend you. But, but the picture I get when I think about an Amway salesperson back in the 90s is, is this, you know, this person that comes to your house, okay, with a message that is just way too good to be true, and you're there, and you're like, okay, so, so what, what, what is this? And they're telling you how if you just buy these products, you can make a whole boatload of money. And you're like, so what do I have to do? They're like, well, you have to sign up for this, but that's not important. Just buy these, and that'll get you started, and buy this, and that, and the other thing. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. I want to ask some questions here, and you ask some questions. That's not important right now. And the more that you talk, you're like, this sounds like a pyramid scheme. And they're like, it's not a pyramid scheme. You're like, so do you want to buy it or not? And you're just like, there's something weird here. That's the picture that I get of how error comes into the church, okay? The Amway salesperson is, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're subtle, okay? They're, they're, they're slimy. They're, they're sleazy. They're slippery. You just can't quite figure out, like, what is it that I have to do? You're telling me that, that within six months I can make $20,000 if I just buy these products. Well, there's a little bit more than that, but just buy these products first and sign on here, and then we'll go from there. And you're like, this, there's something wrong here. That's how false teaching comes into the church. It's the same way. And we get that same kind of feeling. There's just something wrong here. There's something off here. I, I, I got to be a little bit cautious. Maybe that's a helpful illustration. If you weren't born in the 90s, um, or if you didn't, weren't alive in the 90s, <laughs> born in the 90s, you wouldn't be answering the door, um, but, but alive in the 90s. Um, so if you weren't, you know, think about the person that calls your cell phone, right? They call your cell phone, you answer it, 
not the person that's like from the Justice Department or whatever that like they're going to send the police to your door. We all know that one's a scam. It's not sneaky at all. Okay, but the one that's really sneaky, the one that's like, oh, your, your information went out here. Da, 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 and all you need to do is just give me your banking info and we'll get it all resolved for you right away. And you're like, what? This is a real, sounds like a serious thing. And you almost buy into it, but you're like, something's wrong. Okay, so maybe that illustration works better. But I like the Amway salesperson one. Okay, they're subtle, they're slimy, they're sleazy, and they're slippery. That's false teachers. That's how false teaching comes into the church. And Jude says that these are ungodly people. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Okay, they pervert grace, they twist it, and teach that grace ultimately gives us a license to keep on sinning. Maybe you've heard a message like this out there as you've listened to podcasts or the radio or whatever. You know, oh, I don't really like to talk about sin much because people, that's, people don't like that. And God just gives you grace because he loves you. And, and, you know, and God loves to forgive. And that's true. A lot of the things they say is true. Did I mention, did I mention that? That a lot of the things they say are true? Okay. But then they say, and besides, you really like to sin. So if God likes to show grace, and you like to sin, then this is perfect. You just keep on sinning, and God gets the opportunity to show more, show more grace, and everybody's happy. And what do we have? False teaching. That's a false teaching known as antinomianism. Okay, you can dig into that too if you want. But, but th this is how false teaching comes in, because the people that would teach these things, they're subtle, they're slimy, they're sleazy, they're slippery, and it creeps into the church. So here's a few things that we need to be on the lookout for today. And I don't mean primarily here at Harvest Niagara. Though, if I ever preach anything to you or tell you anything, and you're, you, you search God's word and you're like, ah, I don't think that's quite right, call me on it, please. I would appreciate that, okay? At least give me the chance to kind of work it out, you know, through scripture, you know? And I'm sure Pastor Ross feels the same way. If he ever says anything in, in a message that you're like, you look at the Bible, and you find in the Bible, you're like, I just can't figure out how this adds up. You know, reach out, reach out, have that conversation, that discussion. But I'm not primarily talking here. I'm primarily talking about the flow of information that we have through these things today. Podcasts, articles, sermons that we listen to, radio, uh, Christian radio broadcasting that we listen to. We need to have our ears perked up. We need to be listening and ready, and we need to be on the lookout for certain things, here's what some of the things that we need to be on the lookout for. Right here, be on the lookout for a new perspective. A new perspective. Hey, I just want to give you a new perspective today on, on uh, sin and obedience and grace. Amway sales pitch, insert it here. End of discussion is you can sin as much as you want to and God's just going to continually lovingly show you grace and that'll all be fine, right? Um, Okay, so a new perspective. I've got a brand new perspective. I've got a brand new teaching over here. The church hasn't seen this one in years and years and years. When you hear that, your ears should perk up. Normally when I hear that, I think, uh, this is going to be rooted in heresy that the church has already refuted at some point. Okay, so if I just dig into my history book, I'll find it. Okay, so new perspectives. Be on the lookout for new perspectives. Second thing. Be on the lookout for cultural relevance. There's a lot of things that pass today as, well, the, the church has to be culturally relevant. So we can just do this. We can just say this. We can not talk about this over here. We can, you know, take a different stance on this because we need to be culturally relevant and we need to make this message palatable to the world. That's not contending for the faith. That's allowing error 
to slip into the church. Another way to say that is contextualization, that we adapt the message or the way that the message even gets delivered to suit the context that is around it. Contextualization is not always wrong. A new perspective is not always wrong. Martin Luther's perspective on justification by faith alone was seemingly a new perspective at the moment that he delivered it in history. But we need to look at what is actually being said there. So if somebody were to say, hey, contextualization is really important when you take the gospel to Papua New Guinea and a, a tribe there, you should not pound your pulpit and say, that's false teaching. You should say, huh, I should look into that a little bit more. Okay, contextualization, important in certain situations, but often used, in a sense, as a Trojan horse for false teaching. Another one is lopsided doctrine. Lopsided doctrine. If you hear someone preaching only ever about the grace of God, should we preach about grace? Always. Should it be there in every sermon? What? Sure. Come on, second service. Come on. Rewind. We're going to rewind that, okay? Because we have to edit the false teaching out of this message. So we're going to rewind that and we're going to try it again. Uh, the cue is amen, yes, okay? So um, should grace be there in every sermon? Yes. yes, absolutely. Because I can't get to heaven without grace. You can't get to heaven without grace. We need to hear about grace, but we also need to hear about the specific sins that make that grace necessary. So if you hear a pastor who would say, I don't really want to talk about sin, that's not my calling, but I am going to talk a lot about grace over here and this and that over here, a flag should go up. Uh-oh, this is lopsided doctrine. What's going on here? The last one is being man-centered in our approach or man-centered direction. This kind of goes back to the point about niceness. I think our niceness today, our desire to be viewed as nice by all of the culture is really a man-centered perspective that is going to wreak havoc in the church within the next generation, starting even in our generation, because we have redefined love based on what people say love is, not on what God says love is. And so we look out and we say, if I define what people think is love, this is loving, this is not loving, this is loving, this is not loving, then when I come back to the Bible and I go to look at God and I read the Old Testament and I even read parts of the New Testament, I have a serious problem. Because my definition that I've come up with about what is loving does not fit with God's character. When I look at God, I say, oh my goodness, he doesn't seem all that loving. Well, what's the problem there? The problem is not with God. The problem is with our faulty definition of love. So we need to be careful of a man-centered approach, a man-centered direction, especially as we listen to podcasts, read articles, listen to sermons, um, love a church, love, love their worship music, and then play a sermon. Wait a second here. Why? Why is this so important? Why would I spend this time on it? Because Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's not nice. But it's true. And it's important. And if we have a right definition of nice, it is nice. 
Because he's saying, if somebody comes preaching a false gospel over and over again, leading people to hell, it is nice for you to stand up. It's nice and loving to stand up and say, no, that's false. That's heresy. That's not true. This is the truth. Because the truth saves people. Niceness doesn't. We could get into a lot of destructive trends in the evangelical church today, but that's for another time. I think it'd be a good day for us, though, to each of us to wake up and to pay attention to what is happening in mainstream evangelicalism right now. It is not pretty, I will tell you that, at all. We need to pray for the evangelical church. That's what we need to do first and foremost. We need to pray, and then we need to contend as the Lord gives us opportunity. We need to pray that Christ would protect and reestablish the purity of His bride, the church, and then we need to take our opportunities to stand for the truth. And we need to do so with love and with humility, a proper view of love, a proper view of humility. And we need to be willing to stand against the world for Christ. The reformers, they were willing to stand against the world for Christ. They stood against the world for Christ. The apostles, they stood against the Jewish and Roman authorities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude contended for the faith against the Gnostic false teachers who had crept into the church. Athanasius, he contended for the faith against basically the whole world at the time as he argued for the doctrine of the Trinity. John Huss, he fought for the faith against Catholic bishops who denied the authority of God's word. Luther stood against the Roman Catholic Church and the empire to contend for the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone through grace alone. John Knox stood against tyrants who sought to outlaw biblical Christianity. The Puritans were kicked out of their churches. They were thrown into prisons. They were even martyred. Charles Spurgeon stood against the proponents of the downgrade controversy of his day, which sought to minimize the word of God and basically proclaim that in areas it was untrue. These are just a few. Time would fail me today to tell you about Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, John Owen, Richard Baxter, Samuel Rutherford, William Wilberforce, J.C. Ryle, who all silenced critics, crushed heresies, promoted righteousness, opposed tyrants, and contended for the faith both privately, publicly, and even in the political arena. These men were reformers of whom the world was not and is not worthy. Some of them were condemned to death. Others were thrown into prison. Many of them suffered terrible, terrible things, but have been rewarded and awarded a crown of glory in heaven. And each of these men is still speaking today if we will pick up their books, if we will read their writings, if we will look back on the legacy that they have left. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're not alone today. We stand on the shoulder of giants in church history. Let's look back. Let's look back at what they learned. Let's not fight the battle starting at square one again today. Let's look back on what they learned and let's stand on their shoulders today knowing that Christ is the one who holds all of us. Church, I tell you this, the Reformation is not over. It's not over. The Reformation in the church is not over. Christ's bride will always need reform until she is seated with him in glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's not over. 
The, the opposition maybe has changed. Maybe it's not as much the Roman Catholic Church today as it was. Maybe it's more secular postmodernism and, and it's squeezing into every aspect of life. But the Reformation is not over today. There is work to be done. We need to believe that. We need to be willing to contend for the faith. As we close here, I just want to share just a couple final thoughts. Lessons from the Reformation. There's so many lessons from the Reformation, but I just picked a couple that struck me. This is kind of random thoughts from the Reformation, I guess, if you will. Um, let's, hopefully they're not too random. Um, but these things really stood out to me, and I think it sums up some of the things that we've talked about today. The first one is that we need to believe that some things are worth standing up for, even if it feels like we have to stand alone. Martin Luther believed that. Athanasius believed that. He stood against the entire world for the doctrine of the Trinity. And guess what? It worked. God blessed it. God used it. Some things are worth standing up for even if we have to stand alone. Second, why? Because it's better to be judged by men than it is to be judged by God. And Jesus said, when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, if he returns in our generation, will he find faith in our generation? It's better to be judged by men than to be judged by God. Number three, enemies will oppose, but God will expose their evil. We can trust him for that. We can trust him for that. Number four, God knows, God sees, God will preserve his church. Amen? He has promised. He has promised to preserve his church. The gates of hell will not succeed against the church. He's promised. We can bank on that. And then number five, light always follows darkness. I don't know about you, but as I look out at the world today, it just seems like the tide of darkness is increasing by the moment. I don't know if anybody else feels that. I feel that. Anybody else feel that? Okay, okay, more than the first service. There was like one other person in the first service. So, so good, okay, good. It's, that's a good thing that, that we do feel that in one sense. But I want to encourage you with number five. Light always follows darkness. As sure as the day follows the night, light follows darkness. If you go to Geneva, Switzerland, and you go to the university there, there's this great wall. It's called the Reformer's Wall in Geneva, statues of many of the, the great magisterial reformers there. Written on this wall is a little saying, it's a little motto from the Reformation, written in Latin. And it says, post tenebras lux. Post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. How awesome is that? How encouraging is that? I look out at the world today, and I see darkness. But you know what? The light shines bright in the darkness, and after the darkness comes light. Brothers and sisters, we can bank on that because we can read the end of the story. We can move past the book of Jude to the book of Revelation. We can read who wins the battle, who is authoritative over all, that the light goes out into all the world through Jesus Christ. We can see that, can't we? And today, even if culture is dark, even if the church scene in the evangelical churches is looking kind of dark and not great in some ways, 
We don't trust in that. We trust in Jesus Christ who has purchased our salvation on the cross and who is returning for his church to take us to be with him in glory, who is going to do his work in this world. We trust in him and him alone. And so we can stand up with courage. We can stand up for the faith. We can contend for the faith. We can be on guard against subtle shifts in doctrine. And all the while, we can put a smile on our face and praise our Savior and sing our hearts out to him and live our lives for his glory. We can say with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, so God help us. We can say that as a church. We can take that phrase and we can adapt it and we can say, so here we stand, we can do no other, God help us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your incredible mercy that you have shown to us. We thank you today, Lord, for the incredible love that you have shown to us at the cross. Lord, we thank you for the love before that, the love of the Godhead in history, that the Father loved us enough to send his Son, that the Son loved us enough to be willing to go, that the Spirit loved enough to, to indwell the hearts of believers. Lord, we thank you for your majesty, for your beauty. Father, we thank you for those who have gone ahead of us in church history, Lord, who have stood for your name and for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, we pray that in our generation, we would stand firm for Jesus Christ, that we would be willing to contend for the faith, that we would be willing to exalt Jesus Christ in everything. Lord, we look to you right now. We praise you and we give you the glory. And we ask that you would strengthen us, Lord, strengthen your church, strengthen this church, by your power, through your Holy Spirit, for your namesake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.